This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Young Turks, the Tom Hartman Program, the Majority Report, the David Pakman Show, the Progressive Magazine, and the Rachel Maddow Show. And a note that this episode contains kind words about a Republican, so you may want to hide your kids and hide your wife now. George Mason University Center for Media and Public Affairs did a terrific study where what all they did was they looked at PolitiFact, uh, which is an organization that uh, rates the different statements by politicians, Republicans and Democrats alike. Now they did that, of course, exhaustively during the 2012 election as they have in past elections, and uh, it turned out that Mitt Romney wound up making more misstatements. And I'm being kind by saying misstatements, they were lying. And uh, they were significant amount of lies uh, on the Romney side, some on the Obama side, but uh, Republicans won that one. Well, uh, George Mason University decided to look at what's happening since then, in 2013. And they took 100 statements overall that PolitiFact they judged, 46 by Democrats and 54 by Republicans, and tried to find out which party, on average, has lied more. All they did was look at the numbers. And understand that PolitiFact tries desperately to not tilt the scales if I think, you know, look, they have a huge beef with Rachel Maddow because Rachel Maddow thinks that they not necessarily lean right, but that they go out of their way to try to be neutral and thereby inadvertently lean right. Sometimes I agree with Rachel on that. Sometimes I think PolitiFact has been right about it. But understand, they're not trying to support the Democrats. If anything, they're treating to the other side to say, no, 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 we don't support the Democrats. We're just trying to call it as it is. But when they do and they actually research the information and the facts, Here's the results in 2013 alone. For claims that were called false or pants on fire, meaning incredibly false, Republicans had 32% of their claims in that category. And Democrats only had 11% of their claims in that category. It's basically a three to one margin where Republicans are blatant liars, a three to one margin higher than Democrats are. Now, again, it's not to say Democrats don't lie. They do. Now, when you look at true claims, well, neither side did particularly well, but uh, entirely true claims, Democrats were at 22%, Republicans were only at 11%. That's a two-to-one advantage for Democrats. Now, when you broaden it out a little bit, and you talk about mostly false, false, or pants-on-fire claims, it's a broader category, it includes mostly false. Again, we have about a two-to-one advantage. I don't know if it's an advantage or a disadvantage to the Republicans. It winds up being a political advantage. I'll get to that in a second. But Republicans were false 52% of the time. In other words, lying 52% of the time. And Democrats, only 24% of the time. Now, when you go to the true claims, Democrats had uh, 54% of their statements that were mostly true or true. And the Republicans only had 18% of their statements that were true. Amazing. And as I said, Bill Adair, who runs this, he's the editor at PolitiFact, uh, came out and said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. He said, quote, PolitiFact rates the factual accuracy of specific claims. We do not seek to measure which party tells more falsehoods. And he go, went on to say that they just took a limited period of time and a limited number of cases, and we've done over 7,000 of these. In other words, don't call us biased, don't call us biased, because it's really important for them not to be perceived as biased. Now, the reality is they're not biased. They look at the facts, right? The only possible bias could be in the interpretation of those facts. And that's what Rachel Maddow and some progressives complain about. Because oftentimes what they'll do is they'll show a fact 
that is clearly against the Republicans and then go, um, I mean, mostly false. No, it's not mostly false. It's totally false. Or they'll show fact that is mostly false and they'll go, uh, mostly true. I mean, they got some of it right. And herein lies a really important point. Because in a political playing field where one side lies either two or three times as much as the other side, and the mainstream media overall call it even, the side that lies more has an enormous political advantage. It's not a disadvantage, it's an advantage. Now, if the entire media did what PolitiFact does and go, okay, look, I looked at the facts, that's not true, right? In fact, I wish they would do it much bolder. Well, then it would be a disadvantage. But, you know, you know what Fox News does, Republicans are always right, MSNBC, there's some validity to the fact that they uh, are a hell of a lot more on the Democratic side. I mean, they just hired Axelrod and Gibbs, let alone some other things. But CNN is supposed to report the news. And oftentimes, and it's not just CNN, oftentimes it'll even be the New York Times, Washington Post, etc., and other parts of the media. That'll say, the Democrats say this, and the Republicans say that. Who cares? What's the truth? I don't care what they claim, I care what the reality is. And especially in a tilted playing field where one side clearly lies more than the other, if you just keep calling it even, you're doing a great disservice to your readers, to your viewers, to the American public, and ultimately to our democracy. Bill Casey and Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush had not stolen the election of 1980, America would be a very different place. And of course, for those of you who haven't heard the program before or might be new to it, if you want to, Shano, dig out the clip of, uh, of LBJ talking to uh, Senator, Senator Everett Dirksen, you have it handy? Okay, good. Um, back in 1968, we were halfway into the Vietnam War. I was out in the streets, you know, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? There was, there was, it was a rough time. And Vice President Hubert Humphrey was running for election as president against Richard Nixon. And he was going to win. Humphrey was far enough away from Johnson, and he was in particular going to win because Johnson and Humphrey had been doing these peace talks in Paris with the Vietnamese, and they were, they had achieved a, 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 a negotiated settlement that would have allowed America to bring our troops out. I mean, it was done. It was a done deal. And they were going to release the results of this in October. It was an, the original October surprise. I mean, you can argue about the politics of it. You could say it's dirty politics. But hey, you know, Johnson was the president. He was using the power of the presidency. He ended the war. The Nixon people found out about it. And they went to the people in South Vietnam, to Madame Tu, and he went to them and he said, stop negotiating. Do not declare peace. And I will give you, I will make you rich, and I will give you a better deal than, than, Nick, than Johnson is giving you. Nixon, will give, Nixon said he would give you them a better deal if they just waited until after the election. Just, just like, you know, 
Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Casey cut with the Iranians in 1980. This was in 1968. Lyndon Johnson took that secret to his grave, as did Hubert Humphrey. They both knew about it. But after he died, he left this recording in his library, and this was released three years ago by the Johnson Library. This is brand new stuff. This is an actual recording of Lyndon Johnson talking to Senator Everett Dirksen, who was the, uh, he was he was sort of the, um, I guess the Harry Reid of the day. He was it was a Republican, but he was the leader of the Senate Republicans, the leader. And 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 Everett Dirksen was one of the most honorable men. I mean, you say what you want about his politics. Everett Dirksen was an incredibly honorable man. He was a great politician. They named the the Dirksen Senate Office Building over here after him, in recognition of he was brilliant. And a good man, he had this deep, resonant voice. I remember Everett Dirksen. And here's the conversation between Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen about how Johnson, the CIA, has been wiretapping the Nixon campaign because they're, they're actually, they've been wiretapping the conversations going in and out of Vietnam. And guess who's calling? The Nixon campaign. The guys out of New Mexico where the campaign's being run are, are calling into Vietnam. And, and LBJ basically says, I'm reading their hand. I got the cards here. I know what's going on. And if I tell the American people, the American people will be so shocked, they will lose faith in the American system. And we cannot allow that to happen. We can't tell the American people that one of the two people running for president of the United States is a traitor. So this has to stop. He's, he's basically saying, Everett, you've got to get him to stop. This is treason. And Everett says, I know. And then there are subsequent conversations over the next week or so where Everett reports back to him, and we've got all those here too, but I'll just play this one for you just so you know what I'm talking about. Where Everett Dirksen says, I've talked to Nixon, and he's just not willing to you know, budge. He's going to win the election. And Johnson says, okay, I'm not going to out this. I'm not going to take it to the press. Here's the conversation. Here's the latest, latest uh, information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just—they just talked to the boss in New Mexico, and that he says that you must hold out, just hold on until after the election. We know what you is saying to him out there. Yeah, we're pretty well informed on both ends. Now I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. This is treason. This is that treason is how Richard Nixon became president of the United States in 1968. Let that sink in for a minute. And then. As I said, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, whenever it was, the, it was the week of the Academy Awards, whenever that was. I'm lousy with time. A month ago. Uh, President Bonnie Sauter of Iran writes a piece for the Christian Science Monitor in which he lays out that he was elected on a platform in 1980 of freeing the hostages in the summer of 1980, and then he was told by the Ayatollah, you can't release the hostages until after the election because we've cut a deal with the Reagan campaign. Reagan is running against Jimmy Carter. Yellow ribbons tied on trees. As a result of that, as a result of, the, of Carter's inability, his impotence, I mean, he sent a helicopter and he tried to rescue these guys. It crashed. People died. Republicans made fun of him on national television. And he lost the election. Because Reagan had committed treason. 
and then fast forward another dozen or so years, and you've got George Herbert Walker Bush. A half million votes down. George Al Gore had a half million more votes than George Herbert Walker Bush. And Florida was the pivotal state, so his brother knocks 80,000 African Americans off the voting rolls in Florida because they have names similar to felons in Texas. And even that wasn't enough because they were 500 votes apart. And so the Supreme Court of Florida says we're going to recount all the votes in the whole state. And a year later, when the New York Times actually took those truckloads where the ballots and manually counted them all, they found that by any measure, Al Gore actually won that election. But the Supreme Court stopped the count. They overruled the Florida Supreme Court, which, by the way, is a blatant violation of the Tenth Amendment. And to this day, Sandra Day O'Connor regrets this. She's come out publicly and said that she regrets this. So what's the net net of this? The last legitimately elected Republican president in the history of the United States in the 20th century, the last legitimately elected president was Dwight Eisenhower. And Dwight Eisenhower ran on a campaign. You got the clip? He ran on a, camp, on a campaign of vote for Eisenhower, vote for peace. Here is Dwight Eisenhower's campaign commercial. He has met Europe's leaders, has got them working with us. Elect the number one man for the number one job of our time. November 4th, vote for peace. Vote for Eisenhower. A paid film. Vote for peace. That was the last legitimately elected Republican president. And his slogan, his campaign slogan, the TV ads, vote for peace, vote for Eisenhower. Think how different America would be if three Republicans, Nixon, Reagan Bush, and Bush, had not committed treason and illegitimately sat in the White House. How different would this country be? It's my body. If what they said was all pretend, then it'd be different. If it depended on if anyone was listening. And I was listening. Hi everyone, today in lieu of asking you to support this show, I want to ask you to support my fundraising effort for this year's Climate Ride. This will be my second year in a row raising money for 350.org, the best climate organization I know of with a massive international reach, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the best local climate organization which works in Maryland, DC, and Virginia, and also happens to be the place where I used to work, so I know personally how much they deserve the support. In exchange for you helping me reach my goal of $2,400 raised, I will be riding my bike the 300 miles between New York City and Washington, D.C. over the course of five days in September. To contribute, simply visit climateride.org and search for my name, Jay, and you'll see the full name, Jay Tomlinson, pop right up. Click the name, see my fundraising page, and make a tax-deductible donation. I've already contributed to get the ball rolling. Thanks in advance for your support. Now, the fascinating thing about this clip from Louis Gohmert, where he says, well, let's, can we play this part back? Louis Gohmert is making the case that if you uh, teach kids sex ed, it is equivalent to what he learned in the Soviet Union about how the Soviets would take away children from parents 
if they were not right in the head or teaching the kids the right thing and they would give them to other parents. Let's play that, that, that one clip because this is fascinating about, to learn about Louis Gohmert. The summer that I was uh, an exchange student at the Soviet Union back in the 70s, and I was shocked when they were saying no. So there you have it, uh, folks. Louis Garamot apparently spent his summers in the Soviet Union. Nothing is more instructive about Louis Gohmert than that, uh, than that clip, because I think what we're seeing is the revelation here is clear. Louis Gohmert, obviously some type of Soviet mole. Or I think this is something we have to seriously consider. It would explain the entire Tea Party phenomena. How? Something to the effect of, like, Comrade Gohmert. <laughs> We will send you back to America. You will become something called the Tea Party. The what? The Tea Party? Well, what will that do? You will, you will, you will spread all sorts of uh, stupidity and try and make this, the, the United States government uh, very stupid. Well, I don't know. You think they're going to buy it? <laughs> what kind of things would I do? You will tell them that, uh, that uh, they're, uh, they're taking away their parents if they, they learn to, uh, about sexuality and all sorts of other crazy-ass things. <laughs> well, comrade, if you think it's the right thing to do, I guess I'll do it. I seems far-fetched to me. Don't worry. We have all sets of other uh, people who will be... I want you to meet Comrade Bachman. <laughs> She will aid you in this endeavor. We also have sent uh, former Cuban dissidents in the form of Marco Rubio <laughs> to be Tea Party as well. So wait a second. You're telling me that I'm going to be able to go back to America and in years from now be a congressman and say that I'm, uh, I'm from a Tea Party and I'm going to what? Don't worry, we have whole plan. Just, just continue on. We will send you a. We will call you when you hear, when you hear me call and say woods are dark and deep. You have many miles to go before you sleep. That is when you will become activated. Whatever you say, comrade. Like I say, uh, well, I'm willing to do your uh, your bidding if it will, of course, uh, you know, get rid of the uh, evil Satan America. We, we will call They're you Agent imperialist Fun. pigs over there, and I just uh, so glad to have the opportunity to hang out with you who all know that uh, every child should be owned by the state. And uh, I will do my best. I'll just take this little booklet here and uh, meet my contact, Dick Army, according, according to the plan that you have set forward, comrade. <laughs> Be safe. Be safe, comrade Lurie Gomert. So that's the Soviet plan is to literally, like, destroy us through yeah. internal yes. stupidity this is 
Wait till you see what uh, George W. Bush will say about our uh, fearless leader, Putin, many years from now. Oh, Herbert Walker Bush? No. His son. What? The drunk guy? I can believe a lot of things about oh, Come the on now. Seriously? The drunk one. Not Jeb. You're talking about the drunk one. Believe me, comrade Gomert, we have got this whole thing planned out. You're not going to believe it. <laughs> All right. I, I, I can't wait to see that one. Yes. We have managed to do this whole plan. This is really weird. On the same day that the stock market sets a new record, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing at 1556, 15,056 that is, a conservative group floats the idea of impeaching President Obama because he wrecked the stock market. <laughs> is there any credibility left at this point to these attacks? Well, I mean, I guess if what they mean is they want lower uh <laughs> they want a lower market. They want a, you know, an impoverished, diminished um, Dow Jones Industrial Average. Yeah, then maybe they he did wreck the market. The message was um, cap from Capitol Hill Daily. It's a conservative publication based in Baltimore, and it was sent to a bunch of different listservs, and one of them took a screenshot of it, and it says, Dear Concerned Reader, Fearing the very worst, the nation's super rich are unloading their stocks at an, at an alarming rate. Okay, let's stop right there. If that's true then the, the near doubling of the Dow Jones Industrial Average under President Obama must be that for every dollar in stocks that the rich are selling, the poor are buying $4. And we know that that's not the case because wealth has not shifted towards the poor or middle class. It's continued to, to shift towards the rich. So factually, we know that the majority of the stock market's 90% gain under President Obama has gone to the super, gone to the super rich opposite of what is, is in this, this newsletter. Let's continue. Even more troubling, the wealthiest 1% of Americans who typically know the most are the ones most anxious to sell. Let's stop right there. What evidence do we have that the wealthiest 1% of Americans know the most or are the smartest? We don't have any evidence of that. And in fact, many people would argue that it's those controlling or controlling the money of the wealthiest 1% who actually, quote, know. And really what anyone can know is, is really kind of up in the air. Right. So we're talking about, uh, what, hedge fund managers? <laughs> <laughs> and then it continues. You see, Obama just allowed 13 new tax increases to further slow the economy, wreck the stock market, and make it even harder on the 12 million Americans already looking for work. There you go. The bigger question is, is Obama's latest tax screw-up grounds for impeachment? 13 tax increases, and the stock market is almost doubled. Now, remember, I am not an advocate who says the stock market is the indicator of the health of the economy. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that impeaching President Obama because he wrecked the stock market is not only ridiculous, 
because Obama doesn't control the stock market, but it's factually untrue because, as is very often the case under Democratic presidents, the stock market is up 90% over the last four years, Lewis. Bad day to say impeach Obama over the stock market. If the 1% are selling all their stock, uh, then they're getting uh, some nice chunks of change there. They have to like create new businesses, right, and make tons of jobs. If the 1% are locking in the 90% gains they've seen over the last four years, any second it's going to start to trickle down with all those jobs they're going to create with the new businesses. I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up-to-date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How can we cover everything? We cover eight to ten stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious... I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Adrian Chen had a terrific article in Gawker about uh, asylum and how perhaps there was just a tiny bit of uh, hypocrisy in our stance. Now, first of all, of course, you know that there's a lot of Republicans and Democrats, especially in the Senate, outraged by Edward Snowden. Oh, my. How could this guy look for asylum in Russia? He's a lawbreaker. In fact, let's go to Chuck Grassley. He's a Republican from Iowa, and he says, I believe that whatever the law requires, just like anybody that breaks the law, Snowden needs to be prosecuted. I suppose it gets down to, did he break a law? And I think it's pretty obvious that he did. Well, that's interesting, because back in 1997, a guy named Michel Christopher Maley also broke the law. He broke the law of Switzerland. And what he did was he actually took documents that he didn't, should not have been able to take, again, a violation of Swiss law, from a bank. He removed those documents and handed them over to the proper authorities, so he thought. Because he thought he was a whistleblower. Guess who gave him asylum? The United States of America. Okay. Now, I love what he did. He was a whistleblower. Turns out the Swiss banks had records of the Nazis during the Holocaust uh, that had taken assets from the Jews in Europe and they were going to shred them. They, were, they knew who had the assets and who they actually belonged to they were like, and they were going to shred them. And Maley took the documents said, no you're not, and handed them over to a Jewish organization instead and it wound up costing those, uh, those uh, folks $1.25 billion as the Swiss banks had to do a settlement with Holocaust victims. Now that's justice, that's terrific, but the Swiss were livid over it. He broke the law, and by the way, it cost their banks $1.25 billion. Back in 1997, we thought that kind of whistleblower who breaks the law was terrific. Not only did we give him asylum, but will you look at this? Senator Chuck Grassley had this to say about it. He said, the situation we have here with Mr. Maley, albeit everything that he has brought to our attention has worldwide implications, but a person like him acted out of bravery. 
Or maybe the bravery comes after he has acted because he has had to withstand the mental torture of what has gone on since then. So Snowden, not going through mental torture. He broke the law. That's it. That's it. That's it. Maley, um, what a brave soul. Now, Maley is a brave soul, but so is Snowden. And by the way, 55% of Americans agree that he is a whistleblower. So these politicians are against the clear majority of the American people. Grassley back then also said, but it reminds me of a lot of things that happen in our own government. And I realize his is a private sector situation, but I like to think that we keep our federal government honest when we have people in our government who, when something is wrong, will be willing to come forward and say what is wrong. And you were right, Chuck Grassley, they did, and now you'd like to put them in jail. And you were part of an international manhunt to make sure that we can get Snowden and lock him up for life. We do have brave people like that, the exact people you want to quash. One more quote from Grassley. We speak of these people in our government as whistleblowers. Until they actually do it, then we call them traitors and want to give them life sentences. There's a tiny bit of hypocrisy, don't you think? It's just an accident that only you can bear. You're invisible and as wild as the sea. And you hurt what you hold most dear. You're the traitor and you are me. You're the traitor and you are me. You're the traitor and you are me. You are the traitor and I am me. This new report, this, you know, this is the consequence of Reaganomics. I'll just say this straight up and let all the conservatives who are listening right now uh, let their heads explode. And now I'm going to back it up. The suicide numbers, the the suicide rate among middle-aged Americans climbed 28% in the last 10 years. 28%. It was most pronounced, it jumped 40% among white men and women in that age group. Speculation is that the reason why it didn't go up as much, in fact, it went up very little for African Americans and Hispanics, is that, that they were already not doing as well economically, and they had better support networks through churches and communities and tight families, as a consequence of being generally lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And so this, there's this kind of middle-aged, middle-income uh, bubble that people find themselves in where they don't have a, a network of friends, they're not part of a church or a group, and, they, and, and then things fall apart economically. White, middle-aged whites, 35 to 64 years old, 40% increase in suicide rate. Overall, 28% increase in suicide rate. People ages 35 to 64 account for 57% of all suicides in the United States. In 2010, this became the 10th leading cause of death. And what's interesting is that given that this is not returning Iraq war veterans, they're kicking up our suicide rate. But this is not returning Iraq and Afghanistan veterans uh, the, because, you know, they're not 35 to 64 years old. They tend to be younger people. The West and the South had the highest rates. 
And one factor may be cultural differences and the willingness to seek help during tough times. It's also harder to find counseling and mental health services in the South and the poor parts of the West. This from a report by Mike Stobe, or Stobe, S-T-O-B-B-E, in uh, Huffington Post. Suicide rate rises among middle-aged in the U.S. according to the C. These are statistics from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Now, why would I say this is Reaganomics causing this? Or just, a, you know, the bad economy, the Bush, the Bush recession, whatever you want to call it. I think, I think it's Reaganomics. Well, I go back to this piece. I've been talking about this since we started this show 10 years ago. On, on the 18th of September, 2002, the BBC News World Edition, it's still on their website. You can easily Google it. The headline is More Suicides Under Conservative Rule, BBC 2002. You can find it. And I'll just share a few sentences out of it. The suicide rate increases under conservative governments, research suggests. Australian scientists found the suicide rate in that country increased significantly when a conservative government was in power, and an analysis of figures in the United Kingdom seems to suggest a similar trend. Now, they were looking at suicide rates from 1901 to 1998. That's virtually an entire century. And then they said, you know, there's things that we need to do to factor out of this. So the researchers took into account periods of drought and World War II because of their economic and psychological effect. Suicide rates were actually higher during periods of drought and lower during World War II, but they factored those out so that they could get good, clean numbers looking at just conservative versus liberal running the government. After adjusting for these factors, writes the BBC, and this is not a bylined piece. This is the BBC writing this. This is not an op-ed. This is a news story. But after adjusting for these factors, the figures clearly showed the highest rates of suicide occurred when both conservative state and federal governments were in power. This is they're looking at the entire 20th century. Conversely, the lowest rates of suicide occurred when both state and federal governments were both labor. In other words, liberals, Democrats, what we would call Democrats. Middle-aged and older people were most at risk. When the conservatives ruled both state and federal governments, men were 17% more likely to commit suicide than when labor was in power. Women were 40% more likely to kill themselves. The authors argue that conservative rule traditionally implies a less interventionist and more market-oriented policy than labor rule. This may, may make people feel more detached from society, they added. I mean, they're, they're not really sure exactly why this is. The lead researcher, Professor Richard Taylor at the University of Sydney, told BBC News Online, quote, We think it may be because material conditions in lower socioeconomic groups may be relatively better under labor because of government programs, and there's a perception of greater hope by these groups under labor. There is a strong relationship between socioeconomic status and suicide, end of quote. The original research was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. 
And then they, in a series of accompanying editorials, Dr. Mary Shaw and colleagues from the University of Bristol say the same patterns were evident in England and Wales between 1901 and 2000. Rates have been lower under labor governments and soared under the last conservative regime, which began in 1979 under Margaret Thatcher. They fell under the more moderate John Major regime, and after a slight rise uh, when Tony Blair came to power, have since fallen again. Now, this was, again, 2002, so you had still had labor in charge. You still had the Democrats, as it were, in charge of the U.K. Overall, they say, just think of this number. The figures suggest that 35,000 people would not have died had the conservatives not been in power between 1901 and 1998. And then they, they literally, they go through, they list every single period the, and who the, you know, 1901 to 1905, suicide rate 101. This was during the Balfour conservative, uh, 1906 to 1910, you know, the Campbell, Bannerman, liberal. So, and, you know, all the way up to 2000 or up to 1998 when the study was concluded, and, and of course the, uh, the article was published, as I said, in 2002 by the BBC, More Suicides Under Conservative Rule. Now that's the UK and Australia during the entire 20th century. We've had conservative rule in the United States. I mean, you could call Bill Clinton a liberal if you want, but basically our economic policies were, you know, Reaganomics was never repudiated. Bill Clinton did not take us back to Lyndon Johnson or to Franklin Roosevelt. He didn't take us back to the Great Society, the New Deal. In fact, he undid parts of the Great Society by ending welfare as we know it. And I don't mean this as an indictment of Bill Clinton. I think he did probably the best he could do given what he had and what the times were. But basically, uh, the Obama administration and the Clinton administrations have not been New Deal administrations. Reaganomics has been the economic policy of this country ever since 1981. And now we're seeing the rise in suicides. As a, in my opinion, as a consequence of that, I mean, if 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 it, if it, if you can, if the BBC can say, if the BBC can say as a statement of fact that thirty-five thousand people wouldn't have died if conservatives had never been elected to run the the British government, you have to wonder how many people would not have taken their own lives had had. Uh, Bill Casey not cut a deal with the Ayatollah to keep the hostages so that Jimmy Carter would lose the election and Ronald Reagan became president in 1980. You just have to wonder. You know, if we'd never tried this experiment of trickle-down economics, of Reaganomics, of supply-side economics, if we'd never tried that experiment, if we had stuck with what worked...
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. So Ben Shapiro is out there. We read the tweet yesterday. I'm going to remind you all. He tweets out, Ben Shapiro of Breitbart.com. So Jason Collins is a hero because he's gay? Our standard for heroism has dropped quite a bit since Normandy. Then he continues. He's one of the people who goes on with one of those, Jason Collins averaged a 1.1 PPG, 1.6 RPG, and an 0.3 BPG, all more relevant than the fact that he's gay. And to that I have to ask, relevant, more relevant to what? To who? Why is that relevant at all? And then he continues again. What kind of America does the left think, th- does the left think we live in? This is not 1947 with racism. This is not 1997 with Ellen. Bravery requires risk. Now, maybe as a straight white male writing for a right-wing news column, Ben Shapiro maybe hasn't gone out in the 21st century, where, yes, being gay in many areas in the world, and in America... Uh, Professional sports? Professional sports. It is extremely brave to be an out gay man. You know why? Because it's risky. It is risky. People are still being killed for being gay. People, in Jason Collins' situation, his career could be over. It won't be over, but it was a huge risk. It's a possibility, yes. Well, on top of that, he's a 33-year-old... NBA center. So. At any rate, it's an enormous... Yes. To be the first guy to actually do it... It's a risk. Unbelievably courageous thing to do. People, people he considered friends in the locker room could treat That's him differently. That's absolutely right. Absolutely. So, being that Ben Shapiro has such a strong love for the word hero, and he only, he only calls... He, he holds it up to the highest regard. He's a very high bar for heroism, Ben Shapiro. So I decided to take a look into his Twitter feed. Oh, like, so I'm guessing, like, Harry Potter might get the word heroic from a Ben Shapiro. No, not Harry Potter. Okay. No. Okay. No. Let's see. I mean, I thought maybe if you have such a strong love for the word hero, maybe you call your dad a hero, maybe your uncle who fought in some war, you know, all things where I guess you can be pit picky with how you use the word hero. Martin so, Luther King Jr., Gandhi. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, he's, those guys are not Maybe heroes not to, him, to this but little guy. I would say to yeah. most people, you can consider right, that a hero. Right, right. So I decided to take a look through his Twitter feed. And let's just take a quick gander at who he thinks is a hero. Ah, oh, here's one. Ben Shapiro tweets, Thanks so much to heroic governor Sarah Palin <laughs> for the shout-out. So, let, let's, Sarah Palin won. She's a hero. Let's see who else. Ah, oh, here's another one. Ben Shapiro tweeted back in December of 2011. Fact. Newt Gingrich is a hero. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So wait, so let's just get this clear. Jason Collins, no. 
a preening delusional egomaniac, Sarah Palin, yes, and America's premier political sociopath and, and narcissist. And man who's on his third wife. That would be the premier sociopath and narcissist. But, but Ben Shapiro continues. Let's continue looking through his yeah. list of heroes. Remember, Jason Collins, first, first out gay major sports star, not a hero. Oh, Tea Party hero Senator Ted Cruz. Oh, God. He's a hero. Oh, my God. Who else? Oh, someone asked Ben Shapiro what he thinks about Alan West. I love Alan West. He is a true hero. There we go. Alan West, the hero. Who else? Hmm. Back in 2012, you may remember that Sherrod Brown of Ohio, he had, a, he had someone, he was running against someone for his Senate seat. Josh Mandel, let's see what Ben Shapiro has to say about, oh, hero Josh Mandel running an externally tight race in Ohio. Oh, wait, now we're getting into, now we're getting into true heroes here. We got it, we got it, we could joke about before, Newt Gingrich, Sarah Palin, but now we got real heroes. Ben Shapiro tweets, at Adam Carolla is my hero. <laughs> oh, my God. Comedian Adam Carolla is Ben Shapiro's hero. Ah, also, Frank Miller is my new hero, tweets. Ben Shapiro, you might know Frank Miller as the uh, comic book writer, artist. He's done, uh, I believe he was the one behind uh, Sin, uh, Sin City. Right. Uh, why is this guy his hero? Uh, ben Shapiro's hero? Oh, he links to an article where uh, Frank Miller insults Mus Muslims and trashes Occupy Wall Street. That's why he's a hero. Who else is a hero? We got, oh, on the phenomenal Mark Levin show tonight to discuss his my new book, tweets Ben Shapiro. Very excited. Mark's a hero. <laughs> who else? Who else? Let's see. There's got to be some more. Um, I'm noticing oh, this trend asks, here. Someone asks Ben Shapiro about Rush Limbaugh. Super cool dude. Rush Limbaugh is one of my heroes. <laughs> I am definitely a Rush baby. So, ba oh. <laughs> One which, of the most which disturbing ever, phrases which, I've ever heard which, in my if life. You remember that clip we played a few months ago where a, a child calls in, a, a, like a 12-year-old girl calls in the Rush Limbaugh show asking Rush, am I a Rush babe or a Rush baby? And Rush Limbaugh goes, I guess you're both a Rush babe and a Rush baby. <laughs> but, but... Jesus Christ. I think that's it for Ben Shapiro's Heroes. I mean... So I'm oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can't forget this one. Ben Shapiro, back in January of 2012, tweeted this out. He tweeted out an article he wrote for Front Page Magazine, and he tweets, In which I defend Mitt Romney's Bain Capital record. Oh, at least he didn't call Mitt Romney a hero. Oh, wait, but he goes on. No. And explain why Gordon Gecko is a hero. <laughs> so, Jason Collins, an actual living human being who exists in the real world. Not a hero to Ben Shapiro. Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko. Fictional movie character. A real hero.
moderate Republicans are on the endangered species list, and two of the rare birds are squawking to be heard. On Fox over the weekend, Bob Dole, the former Republican presidential nominee, said the RNC should put up a sign that says, closed for repairs, and shouldn't reopen until it comes up with some positive ideas. Then on MSNBC, former Senator Olympia Snow said she certainly agreed with Dole, adding that the Republicans have to rethink their approach as a political party and how they're going to regroup and become a governing majority party that appeals to a broader group of Americans than they do today. But appealing to a broader group, except through fear and even lower emotions, hasn't been the Republican Party's approach now for many a year. At this point, it's the party of the 1% and the Tea Party, and there's little room and even less tolerance for anybody else. It's been kind of a fun spectator sport to watch the Republican infighting in the wake of the Romney debacle, especially when Bobby Jindal had to urge them not to be the party of stupid. But I take little joy in hearing the last gasps from Bob Dole and Olympia Snow, who, unlike current party leaders, at least had some sense, some decency, some willingness to make common ground. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. While searching for common ground. The very first election in which there were presidential campaign websites was the year that President Bill Clinton was running for re-election. He had beaten, of course, a sitting president in 1992 to win his first term, and then in 1996, he was running for his second term, and he was running against the grand old man of the Republican Party. And, and I do not mean that in a negative way about Senator Bob Dole's age. Uh, I mean it in the sense that he was the household name of his party. He was the eminence grise, right? He was the trusted, widely respected Republican of all Republicans. He had been a leader in his party for decades. Bob Dole was not seen as a maverick who liked to buck his party the way that John McCain was sometimes seen. Bob Dole was not seen as a moderate. Bob Dole was not seen as bucking his party really in any way. He was the guy who stood for the Republican Party. He was essentially what it meant to be a Republican. He was a conservative. He had led his party's legislative agenda as, their Republican, uh, as the Republican's top man in the Senate for a decade. But that presidential election in 1996 did debut this wacky new way of reaching the kids out there. The first ever campaign websites. And you can tell when you look back at the archive version of these websites that the campaigns are sort of excited to show how hip they are with the new internet web machine site thing. But you can also tell that they don't really have any idea what they should be using this for or what's neat about it. Uh, from the press release announcing the Clinton campaign's awesome website, it says um, it has a couple of innovative features for those of you who are familiar with the internet and the World Wide Web. It's not very common to have this kind of ticker, it says, uh, with a changing message at the bottom, constantly moving, or to have a server pushing new pictures onto the page with regularity, right to your own computer. Right to your own computer. This is not that long ago, but it really does feel like the beginning of time in some ways. I mean, the Dole Kemp site from that year is still up live. You can still go there right now. It's dolekemp96.org. You can journey back to the days when 
when inbox was two words. <laughs> but nowhere is it more clear uh, that this is really the beginning of time, that so much has changed since the first web campaign ever, that when you look at what these guys were actually running on, you look at the issues page, right? I mean, this is the Republican Party from 1996, their presidential ticket, what they felt like they could brag to the country about in terms of their positions on stuff. So here's Bob Dole bragging about his support for the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Air Act. Here's him bragging about securing full funding for the Violence Against Women Act and all the money that he got for daycare for mothers who want to work but need help caring for their children. Here he is bragging about the instrumental role uh, that he paid, uh, played in extending the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and of course, his signature issue was the Americans with Disabilities Act. Stumbling across the Dole Kemp campaign website, which is still live from 1996, finding that it is still there online right now, like a time capsule, that realization for me today was almost as amazing as realizing how impossible it would be to call this a Republican campaign website today. I mean, I mean there's Dole and Kemp bragging about the instrument, their instrumental role in passing the Clean Water Act. Republicans in the last Congress passed legislation to essentially get rid of the Clean Water Act. And there's Bob Dole bragging about leading the fight for fully funding the Violence Against Women Act. Well, we didn't have a Violence Against Women Act in effect for part of the last year because Republicans in the last Congress were not sure they were for it anymore. Most of them still voted against it. Bob Dole ran for president in 1996 as the Republican who radically expanded the food stamp program. Republicans all over the country in every state where they're in control right now are cutting food stamps. They're trying to cut them federally. The evils of food stamps are central to the whole Republican narrative of what's wrong with America today. This was not that long ago, but one of the two major parties in the United States has changed so much so rapidly that when you talk policy, there's no way to know this was the Republican Party. There has been an unrecognizable change in the party over the course of less than 20 years. I worked on the food stamp program proudly and the WIC program and the school lunch program. I have learned in my own life, from my own experience, that not every man, woman, or child can make it on their own. And that in time of need, the bridge between failure and success can be the government itself. That was him accepting the nomination. The bridge between success and failure can be government itself. How far do you think that sacrilege would go in today's Republican Party? Fox News over the weekend aired a new extensive interview that they've just done with Bob Dole. Could people like Bob Dole, even Ronald Reagan, could you make it in today's Republican Party? I doubt it. And I, Reagan couldn't have made it. Certainly Nixon couldn't have made it because he had ideas. And uh, uh, we might have made it, but I doubt it. On the right, uh, the reaction to those comments from Bob Dole has been that ah, they tell you all you need to know about that old squish, Bob Dole, too moderate, right? But what's, what's important here is not just that he said it, and so it's somebody who's in a party delivering a critique to his own party, right? That's always exciting when it happens. But the important thing, I think, here is that it's kind of quantifiably true. You, you can prove what he's saying there because the history of Bob Dole as the standard bearer for his party is not that long ago. It is even online. And he is right that his policies from less than 20 years ago as a conservative leading his party are in many ways anathema to what his party stands for today. 
And that says something that I think is important about American politics, which is maybe too big of an issue to focus on. It's an issue of framing, because we never talk about, so we never talk about it. it. It is the context in which we operate rather than the thing that's happening newly each day that you can report on. But over the course of a very short period of time, one of the two parties in American politics has really changed a lot has shifted very far away from its previous self and in the process has abandoned a lot of the policies that it used to openly espouse. Is that a done deal? Is that irreversible? Is that process still underway? Is it slowing down? This past December, Bob Dole was back on the floor of the Senate where he had been the Republican Party's leader for a very long time. And again, he is retired now. You see him here in a wheelchair. But, but his time in Congress, his time in the Senate was not so long gone that he was not there among friends. I mean. Bob Dole served alongside a lot of senators who are still there. Harry Reid and John McCain and Pat Leahy and Carl Levin and Dianne Feinstein. I mean, he served along, alongside a lot of people who are still in the Senate. Bob Dole did not serve with the current senior senator from Kansas, Pat Roberts, but he was a lifelong mentor to Pat Roberts. Quoting from the Wichita Eagle, Pat Roberts, who first met Dole decades ago when Dole was in Congress and Roberts was a Marine. Pat Roberts calls Bob Dole the great man and spent years calling himself Dole's bucket toter. Pat Roberts is the man whom Elizabeth Dole calls every time her husband is hospitalized. Pat Roberts will oversee Bob Dole's funeral, funeral arrangements when the time comes. They're very, very close. And that day on the Senate floor, the reason Bob Dole was there at the Senate was because the Senate was voting on something that was very important to him. He was voting on the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which would take the rules that were established here in this country by Bob Dole's landmark Americans with Disabilities Act, and it would set out those rules as a model for the rest of the world to say, we did this here and it works for us. This should be emulated elsewhere. We believe it could work elsewhere the way it worked here and it would be an advance for human rights. And while Bob Dole sat there and they all greeted him and walked past him in order to cast their vote, 38 Republican senators voted against it. And it failed. And among those voting no was the current senior senator from Kansas, the man who has been Bob Dole's friend for decades, the man who's close enough to Bob Dole that according to the local press, he is the man who will oversee Bob Dole's funeral when he dies. Pat Roberts walked past him that day and voted no on this UN treaty to expand the Americans Disabilities Act to be a model for the world. He voted no, because the Republican Party has changed that much. Is this forever? And where does this end? This is Elka in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and um, I just want to thank you for playing that brilliant, brilliant Tim Wise clip at the end of the very latest foreign policy episode. I don't think that I have heard a better and more succinct analysis of the intersection of privilege, power, race, war, and the military-industrial complex from anyone outside of Angela Davis, Malcolm X, um, and, and to an extent also MLK. But, but other than those folks, I, I really don't think that I've heard, you know, in this day and age, a, a better analysis of how those things intersect and how they affect not only the lives of 
folks in other countries, particularly brown and black folks, but also how, you know, that intersection affects the lives of those of us living in America. So again, thank you for playing that clip. It was brilliant. Have a good day, Jay. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is John in Reno. Uh, with this, all this discussion about rape culture, uh, I couldn't help but think that um, the porn industry is uh, helping perpetuate some of this. Just some of the types of porn that's made these days and the, the, what, what's done to women and how it's degrading to women is just, uh, I, I think, as a, a factor contributing to uh, rape culture. And so I just want to get that thought off there. And... Uh, See what others thought. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Hey, this is Stephanie from Lawrence. Um, I'm calling in response to the voicemail from Casey in Chicago. Hey, Jay. This is uh, Casey calling from Chicago, Illinois. Who is talking about the Zimmerman verdict and the angry responses of his black friends. My black friends were outraged to the point of, of just anger. And, and my white friends, many of them, didn't have that same visceral response. The caller identified as a gay white male. You know, I am a white man. I'm a gay white man. So I have the minority thing going for me in that regard. Before he referred to the, the courts as, quote, our courts. In my, my world and, and, and what I see, the justice system did what it was supposed to do. It, it, it protected the rights of the accused, much to the dismay of many people in this country which is the justice system that we all are held accountable to. It's not the court system that I'm upset with because the court system is our court system. And imperfect as it is, it is ours. And then he also explains that this is a justice system that we're all held accountable to. I'm a black female and I don't think I've ever referred to the court as our court. And I think that this has a lot to do with the outrage that the black community felt because we often feel that the courts are not ours. The court does not belong to black Americans, and they're not designed to protect us, whether we're the accused or the victim. I think this is closely related to President Obama's comment on the country needing to work to make black Americans feel like a part of this country. And um, in regard to white privilege, I do think that it's an aspect of white privilege to be able to live in the United States and feel confident that the courts are on your side and that they're yours to reform. So yeah, just wanted to comment on that and keep up the good work. Hey Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. I'm calling in response to Josh and uh, a couple other callers who called in about the George Zimmerman trial and the killing of Trayvon Martin. At first I wanted to keep my mouth shut about this topic because I'm a white dude and um and I'm a privileged white dude from a you know middle class family, and you know I haven't really had to deal with too much discrimination in my life. So I I really thought I'd just sit back and listen. You know I've been sitting back and listening for uh, a couple of weeks, and you know, I've just come to some conclusions because a lot of people are making you know a lot of good points. I just think the way I feel about it is you know when my Facebook exploded when I saw it on the news, I got extremely angry. So um, I don't really understand what Josh was saying about struggling with this and I don't really think that my race has anything to do with why I was extremely angry. A man stalked and killed a child. Um, that's it. It would be easy for me to say, oh, race has nothing to do with this, but that's not true either. 
you know, the other caller who called in from Orlando, I believe, and said, you know, this has to do with the law, um, not race. Stands with the black city and, and this, that, and the other. Yes, it has to do with the law. Yes, it has to do with justice, like the Nuffles were saying. But it also has to do with race. And one of the things, reasons this is such a sticky issue is it's this perfect storm of a really fucked up law, a six-person jury system for some reason, a really horrible execution by the prosecution, and then you have this race factor in that people call race baiting on either side of it. And it's just this perfect storm of blah, which is all fucked up. And, you know, there's one voice that I feel is missing from this, and I don't know. I just thought of it. I have to go on, on his website and look. But I, I was wondering what Lee Camp says about this, because, you know, the one thing we can do is we can stay angry. That's what we can do. Changing law and changing the idea of justice and getting rid of these insidious motherfuckers, these Alec people, you know, what they're doing to our states one state at a time, that's going to take a lot of time. The only thing we can do is stay angry. Like those kids who are, kids and adults who are sitting in it at Governor Rick Scott's office trying to get something done. The best thing that I can do is a white guy sitting in the Midwest when I look at all this stuff is to just not forget it. Not shrug my shoulders and say, oh, well, that's just the way things are. You know what? That's not the way things are. It might be the way they are, but it's not the way they should be. And I'm not, I don't have to accept it. Cornell West on his show, Smiling West, talked about this. We don't have to accept what that jury said. It is what it is, and it's going to move forward. There's not much, aside from direct action, staying angry, we can do about it. But in my heart, as a human being, I don't have to accept that that is our justice system, therefore that is right. Because you know what? African Americans used to be three-fifths of a person, too. And people just accepted that until they stopped accepting it. So I'm just not going to accept something just because six people in Florida decided one thing. What George Zimmerman did was wrong. Period. That I know. Whether it fits into this whole structure of law and justice and how that affects race is another issue. What I know is what I know in my heart and what I know a majority of our country probably thinks is that that was just wrong. Anyway, I'm just going to stay angry because I guess that's uh, that's all I can really do from where I sit right now. But uh, thanks for it. I'm glad we're having the conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So in the wake of the George Zimmerman trial, I've had a couple of exchanges with people who've either called and left voicemails or, or uh, wrote in with emails express you know these are white guys expressing frustration about the discussion of race in America and how they feel personally attacked and and essentially expressing the idea like look you know yes racism exists yeah it's you know it's a bummer but i'm i'm tired of hearing about it and you know i i'm tired of feeling attacked you know, no one wants to feel attacked all the time and so you know as a white guy they feel attacked about the discussion on racism and you know, so, you know, I, essentially, I guess what they're saying is, look, like, I'm not personally a racist. So just because I'm a white guy doesn't mean I'm part of the problem. And so what I'm here to say is that in America, there is no such thing as a person who's not a racist, uh, especially white people. And, you know, this includes myself. And I'm going to uh, read a little bit for you that will hopefully make this point uh, first an example and then an analysis to prove the point 
So, you know, again, I'm going back to the to the well. Uh, this is Tim Wise uh, talking. He's the anti-racist activist. I'm reading his book right now, so I've been reading lots of excerpts from it for you guys. And uh, and so this this first thing I'm going to read is an excerpt from his book. Keep in mind, he's a his he makes his living as an anti-racist activist. So if anyone could claim to not be a racist, it would be him, right? So this is what he has to say. In April 2003, I boarded a plane bound for St. Louis. From there, I would fly to Iowa for a conference. Prior to that day, I had flown on a thousand or so individual flights in my life. But as I walked down the jet bridge that morning, I glanced into the cockpit and saw something I had never seen before in all my years of travel. Not one, but two black pilots at the controls of the plane. A rare sight for any air traveler, considering the small percentage of commercial pilots who are African American. Given the paucity of pilots of color in the United States, and given what I had at that point been doing professionally for 13 years, one might think that two black men in the cockpit that morning would have been a welcome sight to me. And upon sufficient reflection, it would be. But upon a mere instantaneous reflection, which is to say, no reflection at all, this had not been my initial reaction. Sadly, my first thought upon seeing who would be in charge of delivering me safely to St. Louis was more along the lines of, Oh God, can these two really fly this plane? Now, don't get me wrong. Almost as quickly as the thought came into my head, I was able to defeat it. I knew instantly that such a thing was absurd. After all, given the history of racism, I had every reason to think that these two men were probably among the very best pilots the airline had. Had they not been, they would never have made it this far. They would have been required to show not only that they can fly, but that they could do so over and above the prejudices and stereotypes that black folks have had to overcome in any job they do. So just one instance of a thoroughly anti-racist person having that instantaneous sense of racism. So, you know, when, when you say, hey, everyone's a little bit racist, everyone has those feelings, it's absolutely true. And to deny it is ridiculous. And so this is this goes on. Uh, I'm, I'm switching now to Tim Wise's website on his uh, he on his site. He has a, f a frequently asked questions page, and I I'm going to read one of the most interesting sections on it in which he explains why he has admitted to being a white supremacist. And this is why I say that there is no white person in America who is not a racist, myself included, of course. And so uh, the question posed on the website is, I read somewhere that you had admitted to being a white supremacist. What did you mean? And Tim answers, my admission of white supremacy is far less interesting than some have made it seem. A year or so ago, I was asked during a radio show whether I was a racist or white supremacist, and I answered yes, because, as I note above, all of us have internalized aspects of racist thinking thanks to years of conditioning in that regard. I felt it would be dishonest to deny this conditioning, which is something that liberal and left whites often do by denying that we have, quote, a racist bone in our bodies. So I told the truth. Unfortunately, because of the way we sometimes hear and interpret the terms racism and white supremacy, some who learn of this, quote, confession, assume I am admitting to being a closet skinhead or that I don't really oppose the system of white supremacy, as I claim. This assumption is false. I admit that, as is true with any white person raised in a racist slash white supremacist society, I have internalized certain racist and white supremacist thoughts, beliefs, norms, etc. But the fact that I have been conditioned to do thing X or believe thing Y doesn't mean that I can't challenge that conditioning and choose to do thing Z or believe thing Q. I also insist, for myself and others, that although we have internalized white supremacy, this does not mean that all we are capable of is white supremacy. 
People are not one-dimensional. Just as we are all conditioned in the society to be consumers and tend to engage in consumerism to one degree or another, it's also the case that we can choose to fight consumerism and materialism and minimize the extent to which we practice it. Or as men, we're conditioned to be sexist towards women under a patriarchal system, but we can choose to fight for gender equality and to challenge male domination. People have moral agency and are not mere robots unable to turn against that which we are taught. And so that's essentially what I mean when I or anyone else says that racism is about a system and not about an individual, because the system has so thoroughly influenced every single individual that it really doesn't make any sense to focus in on you know, any given person unless they are overtly racist and, and working to maintain the white supremacist nature of the system we're all living in. Anyone who admits to having grown up in the system and been influenced by it is simply telling the truth. So if you're a white person and you feel attacked by the talk about racism because people are saying you're, you're a racist, it just means that they're saying you grew up in this system just like every single other person in America did and had the same effects imposed on you. And that's nothing that anyone should take personally. It's something that we all share. And so, you know, if you if you feel personally attacked, either I believe you're misinterpreting the, the words of the person talking about the system of white supremacy, or you may very well be talking to a genuine bona fide asshole who actually is singling you out, uh, you know, and if it's unwarranted, if you don't actually, uh, you know, believe in maintaining the system of white supremacy, well, then they don't have the right to be saying that. And that's a reason to be you know, upset with that person. But that is not generally the case with those who advocate in a broad sense, like Tim Wise does, like I'm trying to do a, a bit on this show. And that's not what we're saying. No one should take those things personally. So hopefully that clears it up, uh, at least gives some insight to the whole thing. And that's going to be it for today. So thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained